The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. God, I loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We are talking lycanthropy. We're talking periods. We're talking Mimi Rogers. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And Joe, I've been aware that you are ganging up on me today and that you have brought another Canadian into this recording. That's right. It's a motherfucking Maple Leaf takeover. I'm so not angry, but <laughs> I feel very, I feel very ganged up on, but Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, you know her as the co-host of the A Frame Apart and After All podcast, and you've read her work at Rue Morgue, Fangoria, Birth, Movies, Death, and Adam Tickets. Please welcome Ariel Fisher. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And yes, it is a Canadian takeover. Canucks unite. You know, yes. <laughs> you've got your hands full today, Trace. I know, I know. Well, no, because um, Joe has really been trying to push so many secret can like, things that I don't know are Canadian on me. And then <laughs> when I start doing the research, I'm like, fuck, this is a Canadian film again. Nothing against Canadians. But You didn't realize this was Canadian? <laughs> no, I knew this one was Canadian. But you're, you're, you're the secret Canadian in this episode. Ah, <laughs> uh, I got it. I didn't know there you we were Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> really sneaky like that. Yes. Well, it's also very funny because if you look at the timeline of the films that we've covered, I think out of 26 episodes, I think like four or five of them are Canadian. So it feels like a lot more. The batting average is really good. Um, that's a sixth, which would ever percent that. That's really a lot, but it's fine. I mean, I, I get that a lot. Actually, I was going to say a lot of them would be American, but we have had a lot of foreign films. <laughs> this is also true. Yeah. Okay. So, um, anyway, we are here though to talk about Canadian film Ginger Snaps. Mm -hmm, because this episode is dropping a couple of days before Canada Day. Oh my God. Woo! <laughs> July 1st, Canada. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me drink some of my wine really quick. Hold on. <laughs> it's the only way that Trace will get through the entire episode. <laughs> this is going to sound like I'm like Canadian phobic. I love Canadians. You're all great. Joe has really opened my eyes into how amazing y'all can be. So until you met Joe, you thought we were all like a bunch of cowardly lions or something? Like, no. oh, they're so nice and meek. <laughs> no, he just has no concept of like what Canada is. No, my my only exposure to Canadians <laughs> was um, South Park. And the, I thought you all had flapping heads. Oh, God. <laughs> this is they what they us. think of us. Ariel. Those guys fucked us. They, they fucked us all. <laughs> Jesus. So, so, uh, Ginger Snaps. Now, okay, so I have a couple different things, because there was, like, a big, like, Canada versus U.S., like, release strategy here. Mm -hmm. The film was released in Canada on May 11th, 2001, but it did premiere at TIFF in 2000. And then it wasn't released in the States until October 26th of 2001. So, like, what? June, July, August, September, October. Five months later. Sorry, I had to count. Did you use your hand? I did use my hand. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> the Canadian distributor was Motion International, and for the U.S. it was Cinema Village. This is 108 minutes long. Longer than I remembered, but it flies by pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. The budget is $4.5 million, but I don't know if that's Canadian money or if it's U.S. money. Uh, Probably Canadian. That's my bet, yeah. Okay, so that's like probably like $3.75 million American. Well, it depends on what the exchange rate would have been at the time. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, there was one, I think, like a brief period somewhere in the 2000s where our dollar was actually stronger than yours. But generally, you can yep. assume almost a doubling of value. So this would be... Oh, no, sorry. Ours is a doubling. Not a doubling. Yeah. What am I saying? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Not quite that much. But there's a disparity. There's a little bit of a disparity. Yeah. Okay. So this would have been the equivalent of... What do you think, Ariel? It would have been a little bit less in U.S. Uh, Give or take, maybe a little bit more than that. Yeah, maybe it was four million, but it wasn't more than four and a half million. Like, because the Canadian dollar is worth, I don't know. Economics is one of the one the one only classes I made a C in in high school. So you know, it's not for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the box office money I have, so I think it's mostly American. Although I do have the Canadian gross. There was no opening weekend rank, I don't think, but it opened in one theater in the states with um one thousand four hundred and thirty dollars. Ended its run with $2,554. I did pull the release or like the production like section from Wikipedia. It seemed like it had a very hard road. It really blew up at TIFF. It had like a lot of positive word of mouth. And then basically Columbine happened. Or maybe it was like, because Columbine was 99? Yes. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this this got released, like, and, like, it premiered everything after Columbine, and it just kind of really fucked this movie. It ended up in Canada making 425,753 Canadian dollars. <laughs> you say that with such disdain. <laughs> I've, like, you might as well be talking about rubles or something. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so, I mean, it didn't make a lot of money, but I think it was a big hit on home video. I mean, this has become a huge cult film for the horror community, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. The impact of this film was not financial, it's cultural. And it has been throughout, like even still, people are obsessed with it. The fan base around Catherine Isabel alone is enormous. Oh, I mean, she's a huge... My introduction to her was actually Freddy vs. Jason, because I didn't see this until later. And she... uh, Yeah. (laughs) But she's like a sex symbol. I mean, like, she's easily the best part of this movie. I mean, no offense to Emily Perkins, who I do like. But she gets the flashy (laughs) role, right? Yes. Yes. She gets to be the sex pot. She gets to dominate the scene and really chew the scenery way more than Emily Perkins got to. Although I will tell y'all, and we'll get into it later, but I love Mimi Rogers in this movie. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Everybody does. She's like your wacky mom. Yeah, exactly. She's she's my favorite character. Absolutely. She's the best. Well, and like, because like, she doesn't really do horror, although she she was an Ash versus Evil Dead in the first season. But um, she picked up on, obviously, a lot of the black comedy in the script, and that's what she gravitated towards. And I love that she's like this 50s housewife, and I hate that she basically <laughs> disappears during yeah. the climax of this movie, and you don't see her come back. But we'll get to it. That's actually one of the big complaints of people when they first see this. They're always like, so the mom just fucks up? But yeah, yeah, Yeah. we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So yeah, but reception again was very positive. We're looking at an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's with 57 reviews. So I mean, it's it's not like it's like a 12 review thing here. Right. And 78% from audiences. Metacritic, you're looking at a 70 out of 100, and a user score of 8.1 out of 10. So people do like this movie, and I will confess... This is my second viewing. I liked it a lot more on this viewing than I did on my first one when I was in high school. 
I'm sorry, you didn't like it when you saw it in high school? I didn't dislike it, but I was very much in the kind of vein of like, it's fine. <gasps> I know. But I, 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 th- <laughs> I think, and you know, this may be my high school self-talking, but I think it was because I didn't really like where the story went. I didn't like the ending of this movie, so it might have been one of those cases of, like, when people go see a horror movie and it has a sad ending and they give it, like, the F cinema score, it's like, oh, if you have a sad ending, people are, like, not gonna like it. I think that may have been what affected me, and I don't think I read, I, I thought that the movie juggled the tone between black comedy and horror very well. I felt differently mm-hmm. this time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very Interesting. But um, before we get, you know, just dive into the film, I just want to point out, so directed by John Fawcett, who people may know him, he did a lot of directing on Xena Warrior Princess, uh, which is why you may hear Lucy Lawless in the PA system of this movie. And then he also co-created and directed a lot of Orphan Black, which is a very, very, very good show. Yes, and Canadian people will know that he's Uh directed a lot of Canadian television. Yeah, and that that might, because when I looked at IMDb, I didn't know a lot of the stuff. I think he also did like an episode or two of Spartacus, which Joe, you and I have talked about is amazing. Indeed. And also the Orphan Black connection because Tatiana Maslany is the little girl in Ginger Snaps 2. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. Yeah. Which I think we'll probably touch briefly on the sequel and prequel at some point as well. Yeah. I haven't seen either one since high school, and I remember not liking the sequel, but kind of enjoying the prequel. But... You know. Anyway, so he, uh, Fawcett co-wrote this with Karen Walton, so we did get a woman's POV in this script, which I do appreciate. I think it shows a lot. But she also wrote an Orphan Black with him. And they also both worked on Queer as Folk, the U.S. version. Mm-hmm. Huh. Because it filmed here in Toronto. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> Secret Canada. We're everywhere. You can't get away from us. <laughs> I know! Damn it! Like, literally, we're connected. We're right on top of you. I love Canadians, you guys. I really do. I mean, it's great. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Listeners, I'm, I'm being totally... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come across like a huge anti-Canadian asshole. Okay, so, that is my spiel. Y'all's turn. Take it away. Someone. Okay. Uh, do we want, like, a oh, plot, a plot summary? Or? Damn it! <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> Tell us what it's about. I love it. We're 26 episodes in and Trace is still figuring out the format. I know. <laughs> I forget that Joe exists sometimes, to be honest. It's just me talking. That's <laughs> the narcissist in you, Speedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like I should give you guys a minute. Like, should I leave the room for a second? No, no, no. no it's fine. Everyone. It's totally fine. <laughs> it's like a lover's spat. There's just very little love. That's right. Get your fucking plot summary. I'm going I'm I'm to drink my wine because I just, I literally just watched this movie before we recorded. Excellent. Nice. Okay. Will you guzzle and I'll speak? Mm. Okay. So, Ginger, Catherine Isabel, and Bridget Emily Perkins are bored teen sisters with a death pack living in the suburb of Bailey Downs. The pair are outcasts at school and eager to avoid the attention of their overbearing and extremely chipper mother, Pamela Mimi Rogers. After a rash of missing and mutilated pet remains are discovered around town, Ginger is attacked by a werewolf on the night of her first period. The creature is then immediately struck by teen drug dealer Sam Chris Lemench... Lemchi? I, I should have figured that one out. I didn't know if it was Lemchi or Limkey, and I was trying to figure out where I knew him from, and he's the douchebag in Final Destination 3. Yep. <laughs> Everything comes back to Final Destination 2. Wait, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, because uh, uh, also the kid that plays Jason is in Final Destination 3, um, but he dies in the roller coaster. But I don't know where I knew Emily Perkins. Emily Perkins? Yeah, Emily mm-hmm. Perkins. I always get her confused with um Elizabeth Perkins. <laughs> 
not the same. Totally, yeah, totally different. Mm-mm. But um, I was like, where do I know her from? I know that face from somewhere. It's because she's fucking Beverly in the miniseries of It. Yep. Did not know that. Oh. Mm-hmm. As a little girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, continue. Okay. Uh, so the creature is <laughs> hit and killed by Sam's van. Over the following weeks, Ginger begins to transform. She sheds her layered clothing for tighter, sexier outfits. She grows hair in odd places. She develops a cute little tail, and her hair begins to turn white. As Ginger strays further and further away from her sister, she kills a dog, gets in a fight with mean girl Trina, Daniel Hampton, and begins spending time with dumb jock Jason, Jesse Moss, whom she eventually mauls in a reverse date rape scenario. Bridget's concern over her sister's behavior prompts her to seek out Sam. The research identifies monkshood as a possible cure, which is proven true when Bridget is later attacked by an infected Jason. Alas, Ginger cannot be contained. She kills Trina and escapes imprisonment in the house in order to attend the high school Halloween party, where she murders first the guidance counselor, then the kindly janitor, before (laughs) finally attacking Bridget. In order to prevent Ginger from killing Sam after a failed seduction, Bridget deliberately infects herself, then she and Sam knock Ginger out. Unfortunately, Ginger completes her transformation in the van en route home. Sam is almost immediately killed, leaving only Bridget, knife in one hand, cure in the other, to face her sister down in their childhood bedroom. In the ensuing fight, Bridget accidentally, question mark, stabs and kills Ginger. Hmm. The film ends ambiguously with the sisters cradling each other. It is unclear if Bridget will use the cure and live without her sister or effectively die by continuing her own transformation. Hmm. Yeah. I love That's this movie so goddamn much. <laughs> I, I, I really do like I don't like the ending. Really? Really? I know. I, it's because it's a down. It's it's just me being like wanting to see a happy ending. But I did forget how amazing the effects are in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the director specifically like did not want to use any CGI, and it shows. The only honestly, the only thing I had an issue with were Bridget's teeth. I thought oh. that because well, she lisped the whole time. I mean, sorry, not, not Bridget's teeth. Sorry, um, Ginger's teeth. Ginger's teeth. Oh, there we go. I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> what am I missing? I'm sorry. The only thing I didn't like was Ginger's teeth because you could tell it was like a mouthpiece and she was lisping. But not important. Otherwise, it's great. Nah. The werewolf looks awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think that's actually one of the reasons why people enjoy this film from a visual perspective because the appearance of this werewolf is so unexpected. Like, we are used to terrible CGI or the two 70s benchmarks, right? Either The Howling or American Werewolf in London. And a little fucking... Ah, 80s. (laughs) But like a little Canadian film can't compete with that kind of thing. So when you actually do see the werewolf, you know, you could quibble with a little bit of how it looks kind of in that final confrontation scene. But at the end of the day, this motherfucker looks good. It's like this and Dog Soldiers are kind of the, the benchmark of the 2000s and beyond. Yeah, and it does it definitely elicits that kind of classic transformation feel when they're in the van. Mhm. Like you get a lot of American Werewolf in that scene and it's not yeah, you're right. In the final confrontation, it doesn't look perfect. There are parts of the I guess it's animatronic. There are parts of the actual end product wolf that look a little wooden and kind of stiff. Mhm. But other than that, like, it's a great character design, and they did a really good job with it. 
It is. And I'm, and I mean, this maybe isn't the best, like, you know, route to take for this podcast, but I mean, like, I'm always perplexed by the studio willingness to, like, cover up questionable practical effects with questionable CGI. Because I would mm-hmm. rather take this rubber looking werewolf, which I believe because it's there, yeah, than that has a physicality to it. Yes. Exactly. And this cheap looking CGI or car- like, and grant, obviously there is CGI that can look, the best CGI is when you can't tell it's CGI, but if it's this whole character, like, you know, you're watching like the Scooby-Doo movie. It's like, no one gives a fuck, but mm-hmm. when you're watching the thing, the most recent right. thing, Right, no, for sure. Oh, yeah. And they did do practical effects for that, and the fucking studio went and did went over it with CGI, and it's like, okay, it's not like that was going to help the box office for your film. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, like, did they not even see the original film? Did they not Ugh. see all of that amazing makeup and special effects that were done? Mm-hmm. You know, at, like, at no, I can't, <laughs> everything they did with that pissed me off so much because of everything Rob Bottin did. But anyways, I digress. Yeah. Not important. Even if you hate this movie, you have to appreciate how it looks. And for, again, with a pretty low-budget film, honestly, maybe in 2000, maybe not as low because of the inflation. But still, I mean, it looks great. I think it's filmed a little bit like a TV movie, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. One of the things that speaks to me about this film is that it's fairly evident that John Fawcett had a very clear vision of what he wanted to do. I actually had the advantage of listening to his audio commentary when I did the rewatch for this, so I got a bunch of different insights, but he had very specific ideas about how he wanted to light it. Like He wanted to have particular color schemes for the bedrooms to reflect their transformation and their journey as sisters. He wanted to use a kind of orange light when they're in the park or when they're at the school so that you can see the kind of changing of the seasons he's obviously a very deliberate director which i think is one of the benefits of being a bit of an indie horror person because you've got more artistic control like in canada there isn't a real studio system so he got money from the province and from the space channel and from Mm -hmm. the movie network and then he yeah. basically just got to go off and do whatever the fuck he wanted. I do have something to say about the the funding of the film. Mm-hmm. Actually, also the lighting too, by the way. Apparently they filmed this movie mostly at night, and so they had to light it like insanely for the daylight scenes. So the light was so bright that you could see it from an airplane. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> anyway, so just, um, basically, they encountered trouble financing the movie. They approached producer Steve Hoban, with whom they'd worked before. And, um, sorry, they meaning um, John Fawcett and Karen Walton. Mm-hmm. And he agreed to produce the film for them. Hoban employed Ken Chubb to edit and polish the story. And after two years, two years, uh, and this is um, 1995, so you know 1997, they were ready to seek financers. Motion International committed to co-financing and Canadian distribution. And Trimark Pictures agreed to be the co-financer, um, U.S. distributor and international sales agent. As we are aware now, that did not happen. The film mm-hmm. seemed ready to go into production by the fall of 98, but negotiations with Trimark caused the producers to miss the budgeting deadline for Telefilm Canada, mm-hmm. the Canadian Federal Film Funding Agency. Yeah, that's like our big, big funding agency for mm-hmm. films in Canada. Yeah, That's where the majority of people get their money. Yeah. Well, so rather than go ahead with only 60% of the funding, um, the producer Hoban decided to wait a year for Telefilms funding. During this interval, Trimark dropped the film. Lionsgate Films, who Trimark Jesus. would end up merging... I know. <laughs> um, Lion- Lionsgate, who Trimark would end up merging with in 2000, took Trimark's place, and Unipix Entertainment agreed to distribute the DVD. 
Uh, which maybe explains the one theater. Yes. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's upsetting. That's sad. That's really upsetting. I didn't know that. And obviously, when, when they were casting, um, when, when they were casting the film, you know, once they secured financing, that's when Columbine happened. Right. So, basically, a casting director was easily found for Los Angeles. Um, Canadian casting directors proved to be appalled by the horror, the gore, and the language. When one finally agreed to pick up the film, the Columbine shooting and another school shooting in Alberta suddenly thrust the public spotlight on violent teens. Mm-hmm. The Toronto Star's announcement that Telefilm was funding a teen slasher movie was yeah. met with a flirt. I know. Oh, God. <laughs> Sub-genres matter. Yeah. Hey, it's Toronto Star. This is y'all's paper. No, no, I'm saying this is like layman's trying to understand the horror film. Well, novel. exactly, right? Exactly. So that obviously, um, the film was met with a flurry of debate and outrage in the media, which generated a significant amount of adverse publicity in proportion to the size of the budget, which again, four and a half million, possibly Canadian dollars. <laughs> you have to remember, like Cronenberg and Adam McGoin, which we talked about in the two previous Cronenberg episodes. They're kind of candid as big shining stars, mm-hmm. and even they were often working with maybe 10 million dollar budgets at the height of their popularity and cronenberg would usually talk about the fact that he felt it was unfair that people like him were always getting the telefilm budgets and small indie filmmakers weren't despite the fact that those budgets and certain grants were created with independent filmmakers that were trying to break out in mind yeah because they literally were like, uh, <laughs> how are we going to get our money back if we don't have Adam McGoyan or David Cronenberg making this movie? So the fact that they had to wait all those extra years mm-hmm. and all the financing was falling through, it's a wonder the film got made. Yeah. It is. Well, and they filmed it in six weeks. And basically, the, the, and the, back to the lighting thing that I was mentioning, and I, I'm sorry, I like digressed hardcore, but... <laughs> Basically, they were shooting for so long that they pushed the earliest possible start later each day until the scenes written for day were being shot after the night. So the director of photography solved the problem by using diffusion gel and four 18-kilowatt lamps, which generated enough light to be seen, oh, I'm sorry, a mile into the sky, not from a plane. That's like 30,000 miles. So I was wrong. But a mile into the sky. Apparently, the most obvious example of that is uh, the scenes in Sam's greenhouse. Those were actually shot at night, and they basically just positioned giant lights over so that it flooded and made it look like it was being shot during the day. It makes sense Mm. in hindsight, but I wouldn't know if you didn't tell me. No, I wouldn't either. Yeah. Like, now I'll go back and rewatch it and probably be like, oh, okay, yeah, I can totally tell that. It looks so bright when you look at the light coming through the glass at the top. You're like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah. (laughs) Do you like dogs? Because a lot of them die in this movie. Oh, boy. Yeah, So Fawcett actually had a piece about that. He said that he deliberately decided to go with dogs getting killed in this because he knew about the sensitivity that people have to dogs always dying in Hollywood films. Interesting. I like that we don't see a dog die. Yeah. Yeah, it's always just the practical dog corpse. Mm -hmm. Does that make it better, I wonder? For me, yes, absolutely. There's something about seeing a dog in distress that absolutely mm. like upsets me obviously i'm not saying that the the corpse of a dog doesn't upset me but it's not as emotionally wrenching that makes sense no that makes perfect sense actually because i know a lot of people are especially now because we keep getting dogs being killed on screen as part of Ugh, plot I development know. which is kind mm-hmm. of but this seems to have a function and actually that's a really interesting point about you know you're not seeing the dog in distress so i kind of yeah that makes perfect sense actually 
And it, it's even used to comedic effects, like when the little fat boy walks out and he's like calling his dog and he just like drops it. And like, you know, the, the editing is really good and he just screams. It's Again, I never thought I would laugh at a dog's death, but it's, you know, you don't see it. <laughs> I will say this, though. That stupid fucking kid is wearing his ice skates on concrete. Kid, this is like Canadiana 101. Don't do that. Ugh. Apparently he has his skate guards on. I mean, still, get rollerblades. Come on. That's so bad. It was a point of contention. Is that common in Canada that you wear your, you, you're not supposed to wear ice skates on concrete because it dulls them? It's common for anyone who uses ice skates. Like any hockey player to would use look them on at ice. A, yeah, not on concrete. It's like, guys, come on. You're dulling your blades. You're getting shit rusted. Stop it. You're stupid. It'd be like wearing skis out, but not on the ski hill. That actually gotcha. just made me cringe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more Canadian than I know that that idea makes my skin crawl. <laughs> no, that's we all have our things. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. Apparently it is. <laughs> um, okay, so Ariel, what was your first impression of this film? I wish I could remember the first time I saw it, but I was a teenager. And I do remember because it was filmed in, I want to say Mississauga, if I'm not mistaken. It was filmed in Brampton. Brampton. Okay. Same thing. <laughs> so, and, and, and Scarborough, wherever that is. Same thing. Yeah. Scarborough okay. and Brampton are both basically <laughs> the same thing. Okay. They're the suburbs of Ontario. The suburbs of Toronto, anywhere around the GTA, are all basically different versions of the same cookie. So sure. it's, yeah. If you say so. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know Canadian geography. You have no reference. <laughs> Just imagine a suburb outside any major metropolitan yeah. city. Yeah, every okay. neighbor, the neighborhood that you see in this film, it's basically all of the suburbs of Toronto. That, that's Got all it. of them. And John Fawcett actually said that it's also, it's a real neighborhood, but he said it's mm -hmm. also identical to the one he grew up in, in Edmonton, which is on the other side of the country. True. Because it looked exactly like Richmond Hill and Thornhill where I grew up. So I remember watching the movie being like, oh, my God, that looks like the school down the street. Maybe they shot it there and thinking that that was really neat because it made it feel a lot more accessible. Mm -hmm. But the big thing for me actually had to do with Catherine Isabel because I had the biggest crush on her and I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> oh. Well, I was too young, right? And I didn't know what... I didn't, okay, backstory, I guess. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was queer or pansexual until maybe a couple of years ago. Like, I wasn't able to define it. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? And we can edit this out, by the way, if you don't, like, want it on air. No, that's fine. I'm 31 years old. So mm -hmm. I knew that I was different, that I can looked at girls and boys the same, like, in the same way, but I didn't quite understand why or what it meant. Most of my life, but I went through a lot of turmoil whenever I tried to talk to anybody about it and being, you know, kind of, eh, it's some nasty shit. I won't get into it now. But mm -hmm. I didn't even know what pansexual was until I came out to a friend of mine and said, I think I'm bisexual. And she was like, actually, I think this might fit you better. And she explained it to me. I'm like, holy shit. Yes, I never knew this existed. So watching Catherine Isabel when I was like in my early teens, maybe – was really weird and conflicting because I I felt things, but I didn't know that those things were okay. So watching her and like, I wanted to both be her and be with her. Uh, that's always the best and the weirdest. So weird. 
It's so weird. And I have wanted to replicate her kind of mostly transformation when she walks into the costume party for like oh, Halloween yeah. or something a million times. But also I do not have Catherine Isabel's physique. So that would make me way too uncomfortable. Would that we all had <laughs> Catherine Isabel's physique. Tell me about it. <laughs> I was actually uncomfortable with how thin she is in this film. I didn't remember her being like, she looks too thin to me. I think she's always looked like that, though. She does. She does. Even in person, like, she looks healthy, but she is just naturally a very thin woman. She has very narrow hips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you had a chance to interview her? I haven't interviewed her, but I've kind of... I was at a... You stalked her on the con circuit, didn't you? I did. No, I didn't. Oh, I I would have done that fucking too. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was at the uh, Toronto premiere of... Yeah, I guess the Toronto premiere of American Mary. And Ugh, it wasn't like for the No, I, was saying, I, I love American Mary. I love American oh, okay. Mary so much. I wasn't I heard the grunts and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> is this a lovely thing? What's going on? <laughs> no, it, it's to- total love. That movie is it's the Soska Sisters' best movie, like hands oh, down. Oh, yeah, hands down. And they were there and Catherine was there and we it was this cocktail party for the uh for the Toronto premiere of it. It had already had its premiere at Toronto After Dark. So this was a several mm. months later, and it came back to Toronto for a theatrical release. So th- she was there for that. And super, super nice. Like, she's the sweetest person in the world. Actually, it was really funny because I went into the bathroom to, like, touch up my lipstick. And she came out of one of the stalls and then complimented me on my lipstick and said I looked gorgeous. So I had oh a bit of a heart attack and had to leave. And then I went up to Jen and I was like, Jen, Catherine told me I was beautiful. And she's like, well, I mean, you are. I'm like, ah. <laughs> I can't take it, it's too much. I start freaking out. That's fantastic. It, it's always also nice to know that when the, the people you like, idolize might be like the wrong word for it, but you, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. When they're actually, you know, like nice, decent people. Because you oh, yeah. you, I've met some people that I'm like, you know, oh, fuck, they're kind of assholes and that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a danger of meeting, meeting your idols. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> So it's but it's interesting that you mentioned you know that you don't like not that you don't like I'm sorry that you you know didn't know about pansexuality you know until you know you kind of like realized that that's what you were because honestly I didn't even as a gay man like I I just assumed you know it was gay lesbian bi trans also of course mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of the first time I heard of pansexuality I feel like I feel like it probably was sometime in my like late twenties because I didn't I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Should we maybe do a definition in case people are like, I have heard of it, but I don't know what it is, or I've never heard of it? Yeah. Generally, at least the way I define it, the way I've come to define it for myself is Mm -hmm. that you are interested in people regardless of sexuality or gender, any of that. So I can be as equally attracted to a man as a woman as a trans man as a trans woman as a gay man as a straight man as you know whatever it doesn't right. matter it's kind of just i i just see people i don't register gender as much really i think that's something that's i mean obviously it's always existed obviously you know people just couldn't figure out what it was and you know it goes into mm-hmm. the question of you know like, like do we want labels because i know some people aren't big into labels but i think it's something that's become more applied i guess Mm-hmm. As you know, gender fluidity has become more commonplace, uh, at least to talk about in you know mainstream society. Oh yeah, completely. And at least for me, because for years, I mean, I I kept flip flopping between: am I gay? But I really like men. But I kind of like women. Am I bisexual? Like, but that doesn't feel right. Like, it never felt right. Whenever I tried to define what was going on, and. Mm-hmm. 
then as soon as my friend mentioned the term and I started researching it a little bit more and actually looking into it, all of a sudden it was like, and this is going to sound so melodramatic and stupid, but it was like my heart opened up and I felt normal for the first time in my life. It just made sense. That, no, that, that, and Joe, you can, I'm sure you can back me up on this, but it doesn't sound stupid because I think, I feel like for any person, whether they're straight, queer, like whatever, there's always a moment where you like, you do understand yourself. Mm-hmm. And that description you just gave like applies to it perfectly. And I mean, for queer people, you know, this, this that moment, cause like, you know, you have to like understand what you are and accept it and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure straight people have something along those lines. I don't know. Maybe it's like some weird kink they have or something. <laughs> <laughs> but- <laughs> <laughs> Why do I like strangling my balls? I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> Why do I like putting on fake werewolf talons and scratching myself? <laughs> so, but no, I mean, like, totally. I, I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think it's. Like, I think that's great. Thank you. And I'm glad you had that moment. <laughs> I, me too. It made a big difference. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Catherine Isabel, if you're listening, <laughs> thanks for <Yeah>. helping. <laughs> thanks for helping. But to, to segue back, though, that's Sorry. kind of what... No, 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 no. This is what we do. Tangent this is what we do. totally applicable. <laughs> but th- th- that is kind of what Ginger has to do in this movie. Hmm. Going back to my first viewing experience, I think that's why I didn't love it. Because I was like, I wanted her to be like, oh, yeah, I'll take the cure and be with Bridget. Because we're sisters. And the fact that they don't ever reconcile is so upsetting to me. Hmm. And I still don't like it. Well, I would actually argue that they do reconcile, just not Ginger. Like, Bridget clearly reconciles. Like, that's how I always interpret that final scene, mm-hmm. where she could just give herself the cure and be done with it, but instead she cries and then maybe takes it, maybe doesn't. But the final image is her back with her sister like they were at the beginning of the film. The big thing with me with the ending is that ultimately it doesn't matter what she does. Bridget, throughout so much of the film, she's at Ginger's mercy a lot of the time. And Ginger is a bully. She is. Like, let's call a spade a spade. She keeps her under... Yeah, she is. Yeah, she keeps her under her thumb all the time. She bullies her into doing what she wants her to. And eventually she tries to bully her into join into suicide. She tries to Mm -hmm. bully her into becoming this thing. Yeah, the literal death pack enacted. Yeah, exactly. And she decides she doesn't want to because she's, you know, finding things out about herself that she likes, that she can be self-possessed and self-possessed beyond Ginger's capacity for including her, right? Mm -hmm. So do y'all view this more then as Bridget's story than Ginger's? Oh, yeah. I will both, really, for me. Mm-hmm. I would probably give Bridget the edge if only because we we tend to get a bit more insight into her psyche and what she's going through. We're mm-hmm. seeing what's happening to Ginger through Bridget's eyes. But at the end of the day, I mean, to me, the reason that this film has found an audience and the reason that it strikes such a chord with the horror community, and I think particularly with women, is because it is a story about sisterhood first and lycanthropy second. It's also a story about losing control. It's a story about finding mm-hmm. yourself and your own inner strength and your own inner power at the same time as struggling to reconcile who you are with mm-hmm. what society expects of you. I mean, if we look at Ginger's transformation and this venture into lycanthropy, it's really just an analogy for 
women coming of age physically and, yeah. you know, with yeah. the increased sexual drive and sexual desire. And that is, I mean, from the get go, she was a prude, right? The, she, she hadn't had sex. She wasn't going to put up with the popular guys and everything. And then she does. And she comes into her own as this person, this human who has a sexual appetite. And it mm -hmm. goes completely to the other end of the spectrum. Because the, the metaphor for puberty mm -hmm. is very on the nose. I mean, not on the nose. It, it, it's very obvious. And I've actually never seen a film, horror or otherwise, take menstruation, like, to such degrees <laughs> as really? this movie does. So you've never seen Carrie? <laughs> well, okay. I apologize. <laughs> or The Exorcist? <laughs> Or blew my mind. <laughs> well, I've, ne I, I've, I've never seen blew my mind. I've never seen. Like, but, but I know Actually, what, I haven't seen that yet either. Oh, if you guys like Ginger Snaps, it's like a, a really good double bill. But it's a it's a mermaid movie, right? It's a secret mermaid movie. <laughs> See though, okay, no, fuck you, because no, because <laughs> it went to Fantastic Fest, and it literally, I think even the description was like it's a mermaid movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same kind of deal, though, where I think people do it a disservice if they say, like, oh, it's just like, it's a girl. Like, it's a lesbian coming of age film mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. some mermaid stuff in it. Well, just so you know, it's on Shudder right now. And the, like, preview image for Shudder is her as a mermaid, which is apparently the money shot at the end of the movie. So Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> the whole movie is her transforming in the same way that Ginger is here. Like, it's a very slow process. And right. it's all about confusion like my body's changing i don't know what i'm feeling but it's mm -hmm. tied to burgeoning sexual appetites and in the case of blew my mind it's one girl for another like a girl that she's attracted to oh it's queer too yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck we got to our list okay sorry <laughs> it's already on there oh my, i didn't know that <laughs> anyway but no so i mean okay so because ginger and bridget you know they're 16 and 15 respectively they have not had their periods yet yes which is exceptionally late. Yeah, which incidentally is, is another thing I relate to because I didn't get mine until I was about their age either. Turns out it's because mm -hmm. of a condition, but I didn't get mine either. <laughs> so I related to them a lot. <laughs> Wait, what kind of a condition? It's called uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. No, I no. really don't mind. I don't. I'm an open book, man. You can ask me anything. Seriously, I will tell you. So it's polycystic ovarian syndrome or polycystic ovary syndrome, also known as PCOS mm. for short. But generally, women typically will get their, their first period much later, and mm. then their periods are irregular consistently. Uh, we're talking once every two to three months, give or take, which means that those symptoms of uh, PMS last just twice as long. It's great. It's awesome. Oh. <laughs> but on top of that, it can lead to other problems. It can long-term lead to infertility. It puts you at a higher risk of uterine cancer. It puts you at a higher risk of diabetes. Like There's a lot of nasty stuff that comes with it if you don't manage it, but it's remarkably easy to manage. If you can get the right treatment, for the most part, it's basically just being on birth control. So hormonally regulating, mm. you know, to get nice and horrific and gruesome, shedding your lining, if you can regulate that so it doesn't create cancer cells, for instance, not, you know, eating too much, stuff like that. But it's finding the one that doesn't make you nuts because Lord knows oral birth control sucks. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that you that you say, though, you know, oh, like, you know, like, it's gross shedding the lining. Because, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of men who mm -hmm. are grossed out by the thought of, you know, what a period actually is. And so I appreciate mm -hmm. that this movie took time <laughs> to have a woman <laughs> explain exactly in very graphic detail what a period is. So good. 
Oh my god. <laughs> it's so great. And it, it's played for laughs a bit, but it's not like making fun or like, you know, looking down on the process because it is, it's a natural not process. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the late bloomer thing, because my sister, um, she's two years younger than me, but she always looked older than me. So people thought we were twins for a while because we were the same age. And then she got taller than me. And girls typically go through puberty before boys. So my sister... Like, you know, got her period, like, oh, God, sorry, Haley, she's not listening to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she got her period when she was, like, 10. Um, whereas I didn't start going through puberty until I was, like, 13 or 14. So I, mm-hmm. it was pretty late for me. So watching this, because I, I forgot that that was kind of a plot point in this movie, I, I resonated with it. I mean, I get that I'm, like, a man uh, and not in the same wavelength. But, you know, that that feeling of, you know, oh, I'm not going through something that my peers are going through. Oh, yeah. Really affected me in a strong way. Mm-hmm. And it's a weird feeling to, to have. Like, it's a weird position to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You worry that something's wrong with you, like that something's not right. Oh, I mean, I remember being in the locker room and being like, why don't I have underarm hair? Like, not wanting to lift my arms up because I didn't want to see, I, I didn't want the other boys to see that I didn't have underarm hair. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's also why these films work as well as they do, right? Like, the bathroom scene that opens Carrie, the way that the girls are treated as outcasts here in Ginger Snaps, like it's another opportunity to identify how isolated and how weird you can feel, particularly as a teenager. That's why coming of age horror has that emotional capacity that we don't always see. Like, I can't imagine this film working half as well if these two were a decade older. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could still make it work. It wouldn't resonate as much, probably. Well, you could do it about, like, sisters and the way that they look out for each other, but it would just be, like, a derivation of a family mm-hmm. drama, right? No, 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 because, okay, so, I mean, this, I mean, it's a totally different movie, but I, I feel like not enough movies are made about, like, you know, the trials and tribulations of being in your 20s, <laughs> especially, like, your mid to late 20s, you know, where you're crossing the threshold from, like, oh, because, you know, young 20s are like, oh, like, you know, you're still kind of going crazy, like, you're kind of having fun and then you're like oh wait i have to be an adult and have a life so i feel like those are the horror movies that are all set at like people having a corporate job where you're just like oh is this my adult life now i have to go to the office i have responsibility i have to pay bills yeah it's like they go from one end of the spectrum to the other it's your early 20s or you're partying too much and then by the time you get to your late 20s it's oh great i'm in a job i hate yeah but Mm -hmm. like that's all there is (laughs) Actually, I've got one. Mm-hmm. It sticks with the theme, spring. Interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, it doesn't really, like, focus. I mean, I, I get it, because he is, you know, in that age group, but it's not really about that, because it's really... I mean, I love that movie. Don't mind, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But, Ariel, do you know it? I know it. I know Justin and Aaron. I've in- I've talked to them about it. I've Yeah, I'm very familiar. Very. Okay. It's before sunrise, but, you know, with Lovecraft. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Accidentally Lovecraftian. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But a big part of that film is going on a kind of walkabout tour to discover who you are. Like, that's why he's on vacation. Yeah, but how many of us go through a walkabout in our 20s to, like, learn ourselves? How many people go on a gap year (laughs) in high school and university? Like, nobody. Nobody ever. What what is a gap year? I've never heard that term before (laughs) in my life. I didn't do that, so I can't relate to it. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize the podcast was all about you. <laughs> oh, the sass. I love it. I'm, no, I, I, 
shit. No, my I, God, if you can't relate to something because you haven't gone through it, girl. No, like, it's gonna be a long journey. You're, you're no, I no. Oh my God, no, you're twisting my words. I, I'm aware of that. I'm just saying what I was talking about was not that. I was saying. Dig us up a little deeper. Dig up, boy. Dig up. Spring is so good. Oh my god. Anyway, my original point was just that you know these girls are treated as outcasts in part of because of the way that they look and the way that they act, Mm -hmm. but also I think because they haven't undergone this physical transformation that all of these other let's be frank dickheads at this school Mm -hmm. have gone through. Mm -hmm. All of the other teenagers in this movie, I was going to say they're all dickheads, and I was going to say, oh, but Sam. But I think we should talk about Sam. Let's talk about Sam. The first time I saw this film, I was like, he's the nice guy. Oh, I don't want him to die. I want him and Bridget to get together. And every subsequent time that I see it, I'm like, Sam's gross. Uh-uh. Yeah. I Sam is so really? problematic. <laughs> yes. Wait. Icky. Okay. There's I- I'm I'm gonna play okay. I'm gonna play the dumb the dumb white boy in this ep- in this episode. So explain. Okay. Danielle Hampton's character, Trina. Mm-hmm. She has this brief little moment, like, the way she's constantly coming after him. One, it it's made to look like it's super, super desperate, but she has a brief throwaway line at one point where she says, I can't believe I went out with that guy. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Don't really think too much of it. And then later, right before she gets killed, spoilers, she has <laughs> this little moment where she gets mad at Bridget for having... She feels like Bridget has stolen him. Yeah, and she calls, uh, she says that he's a virgin hound or a cherry hound. She calls him a cherry hound. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he'll fuck you and leave you. And she starts crying and like really regretting it. So clearly, she was pressured into sex when she was too young by this guy who's clearly older and has graduated high school, but still hangs around the high school to pick up virgins and deflower them. Like that is his role. Mm -hmm. That's what he does. So he may be fine with Bridget. But in the grand scheme of things, he is obscenely problematic. Yeah. And I think the inference is meant to be that had all the stuff with Ginger not been going on, that's what he would have been doing with Bridget or would have still tried to do with Bridget. Well, they they wouldn't necessarily cross paths, though, unless that was happening, right? I do think there was a part of that relationship where he actually felt a genuine connection with her. Because I think he was willing to write her off with the whole like, oh, I think it was a lycanthrope, sir. And he's trying to catch her and be like, you don't know what the fuck this is. And she knows. And he's immediately taken aback and stunned. And he never does try and get in her pants. He's just enjoying spending time with her. So at the same time as being really problematic, you get this kind of weird bonding thing happening. So I think he did start to care for her, but Mm -hmm. he's still a dick. Like he's still an insanely problematic character. He even says at one point, though, to, to Bridget, like, I, I don't feel that way about you. Like, I don't want that. And maybe it's because she's too young because she, you know, she skipped a grade and whatever. But I, 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 I agree. You're right. I, I did catch that line from Trina. I think I, I'm, it's gonna be if I had a nickel, I just have to say, if I had a nickel for every time a guy said, I'm just not into you that way. And then 180, everything went yeah. in a completely different direction. And he was clearly into me. Like, I would be really fucking rich. And it probably involved parties and alcohol and situations where you're like, hmm, I don't know. I wasn't feeling it before, but now I am. So is that like the guy's way of being like, 
I'm not interested in the hopes that, you know, the girl will, like, chase after him and, like, want it to happen. And then they'll be, like, it's, like, them excusing themselves for, like, wanting, for basically, like, fucking them. No, I think it's their way of, <sighs> screw, <sighs> their way Is of it making like it clear that the, yeah, it's exactly that. It's control. It's their way of being, like, meh, mm. I'm not that into you, but maybe I'd fuck you. And that's kind of it. So, like, they're not into you. They don't want to be with you. But they're definitely interested in getting down and getting out. And that's it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's all about the fucking. Oh, it's all about the fucking. That's the reason why he's dealing drugs in his rape van at the school (laughs) is because he's using the opportunity to sell drugs to teenagers to scope for potential people to sleep with. Mm -hmm. So. And to profit, obviously. And to profit. So then do you feel bad for him when he dies? I mean, that's obviously his comeuppance, but do you think he has a turning point in the movie where you're like, oh, you know what? He's changed. I'm all about that redemptive arc. I mean, I'm a big fan just in life of really understanding people's motivation. I've forgiven a lot of people of a lot of bullshit because I can see how they got to that bad behavior and I feel sympathetic for it. I feel fairly sympathetic for him at the end, but he was such a toxic dude that by the time he does get killed, I don't totally care. Like, I'm kind of fine with it. He just seems like collateral damage to me, honestly. Interesting. I mean, like, admittedly, like, on this second viewing of mine, I heard Trina say that line about him, and I I don't think I realized fully that that's who she was talking about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that either until this rewatching, honestly. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really buried in there. It's easy to miss. And part of it is that he seems like the nice guy alternative because the other guys are so awful. Oh, yeah. But they're stereotypically awful. Like, it's easy to know to hate them. Like, Jason is such a dick. I say, well, I say, right? We have to move to Jason next. Like, absolutely. But Sam does help her mm-hmm. for most of the climax. And even when Bridget, uh, when fucking, fucking Ginger tries to fuck him, he's like, no. I mean, granted, I would argue you could say it's because oh she's like got werewolf titties and she's you know like clearly not a human being <laughs> yeah but they, he <laughs> I, I want to with it for long okay, enough to make hang it on. let's talk about that though for a second because the way you said you know she's clearly not a human being that's kind of the point she's in the process of going through peer through puberty this is a right. month after she got her first period so in theory this transformation is her next period so she mm-hmm. is not even it's her in full menstrual mode well exactly that's what what's at the heart of the entire thing right is this idea that women going through puberty and young women once they hit puberty are no longer really human. They become women in the fabric of society where they are considered consumable goods. And for Ginger, while she's in the throes of having her period and about to have this lycanthropic transformation, she's not human. So they don't consider her something that's consumable anymore because she's bleeding and she's gross. And she's literally turning into a monster. So she's also literally not human. But that's what's in this at the heart of it all is the monstrous things that happen to women when they go through puberty. And then it's just kind of, we want to consume you, but we don't really give a shit about you. Yeah, it's Mm. almost like a double dose, right? Because there's the horror to be found in puberty as a process that only happens once to teenagers. Gross word, by the way. I'm sorry. I've never liked the word puberty. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's not related. I'm just saying I hate that word. (laughs) (laughs) i get it i get it way to undercut it but yeah so there's puberty but then there's also 
the menstruation, which obviously is brought about by puberty, but it's one of those things where we don't often see horror movies about any other women going through menstruation. Like you see it in this focalized point. So it's the perfect moment to capture how monstrous Ginger truly is because it's like a double whammy of like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, puberty and bleeding. Go. (laughs) Exactly. Basically. Mm Mm-hmm. So basically, werewolf titties equals metaphor. That's what we're saying. Okay, so no, because <laughs> in the scene where she's about to fuck or trying to fuck Sam, she has like, the, it's like the dog nipples where they're like on her stomach. But then when she's in full werewolf mode, she literally has like werewolf tits where tits are supposed to be. So yeah. I was very much like, wait, does she still have the nipples on her belly? I don't know. I mean, not the important question. I understand that. But I was really, <laughs> I was really wanting to know. The anatomy of the werewolf. I did like the fact, though, that the creature designs are specific to gender in this film. Like mm-hmm. There was deliberate attempts to distinguish Ginger's transformation from Jason's because he just looks like he's having a really An disgusting acne outbreak. Acne outbreak. Yeah. Yes. But he also looks more traditionally werewolf, whereas she has mm. the, the sexy transformation. I disagree with that. He looks more like a leper to me. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, they both have the fucking teeth problem. But yeah, like, lepers, are, I mean, I, I was thinking acne like Joe, but once you said leper, I was like, oh, that's a more apt, I think, comparison. Mm-hmm. And also, we don't see him again after he's cured. No. Which honestly, I'm fine with because fuck that guy. I mean, you know, yeah. he, he sucks. The pissing blood scene, but whenever I see someone Ooh, pissing blood, like that's a way to get men right there. <laughs> if you want to make men upset, it's that, <laughs> and it's um cabin fever when he's peeing and like pouring ammonia on his dick. Yeah, I mean, like I've fuck knock on wood, I've never I had an. I thought you were about to say fuck. I poured ammonia on my no. Dick. I like, Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> I poured lots of things on my dick, but ammonia is not one of them. Okay, well, we're not Thank going God. into, like, a chocolate syrup story. Oh, my God, no. I, okay. I'm sorry, a what now? <laughs> okay, so I was going to tell you all. So, like, no. <laughs> I cut my thumb earlier today, and I had a, a waterproof bandaid on it, and I, like, ripped it off. There was, like, a sticky residue. St- so, okay. Sticky is my least... Oh, my God. Where is this going? Wait. <laughs> I have a point. <laughs> sticky is my least favorite tactile sensation. So, food things and sex in me don't mix, they don't like sticky. But whenever I say that, there's always a cum joke to be made out of it, you know? It's like, well, you're gay, you like cum. And I'm like, I don't just bathe in cum. I don't want sticky cum all over me all the time. Oh my god, oh my I'm god. totally envisioning you I am in like the bathroom. Wait, wait, wait. But like in the bathtub from Hostel no, Part 2, but yeah. it's just cum. No, but, but here's the thing I do like cum a lot. I'm kind of. I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of a cum fetishist, but, 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 it's only sticky if you rub it on yourself and thin it out, or if you get it wet. If it's just a puddle on you, it's fine. But that's it. So, <laughs> I like the idea of cum, but I just don't want it to stick to me. I am going on record. This is my favorite <laughs> guest appearance on any podcast ever. I, I just call this Thursday now. <laughs> anyway, but no, so oh so cho- chocolate syrup is not something I ever want on my dick because it's sticky. It's gross. Blech, 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 blech. Oh dear, that's the. Uh, best we're leaving that in, by the way. We have to leave had. that in. <laughs> oh yeah, no. That's I mean, amazing. We're X-rated for a reason. 
Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know what we were talking about. To be honest. <laughs> when he pees blood. Like we were talking about Jason. Oh yeah. When he Let pees say, blood. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah, it, it hurt me. It's, I've never had an STD, knock on wood. That was always me, knock on wood. But yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a kind of like a gonorrhea joke, right? Like, it hurts to pee, only in this case. Ooh, it's blood. Or like well, a UTI. Yeah. But I guess guys get that way less frequently than women, so it's not a thing you think about. Yeah, women women get it a lot more frequently than men, for sure. Yeah, they suck. For women, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely poor ass. P.S. Oh, yeah, men have it so easy, which is, I think, again, why this movie is so good, right? Because mm. it's doing such a good job of capturing a lot of the nuances of like, a female transformation in both a monstrous fashion, but also just in a very humane way. Like, girls go through this process, and it can be horrific, or you are treated horrifically by people. But this is, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's... It's tricky because I love the end of this film. I think it's sad and poetic, and this film it's is so really, sad. Uh, it's, it's a tragedy, but I'm there with you, Trace. Like I think Ginger is so fucking boss. I would have mm-hmm. loved to have seen a movie where she gets to embrace that power and just goes on a fucking rampage. See, I wanted her to take mm-hmm. the cure and be like, uh, "Oh, okay, all right, all right." Bef- <laughs> before we get to this ending, I no, I. I I want to talk about fucking Pamela and her oh, willingness. I you were going to say come again. No. Yes. <laughs> Can we talk about more? I, sorry. No. So so we, we did Seed of Chucky last week. And literally I was like, can we talk about some cum? I want to talk about cum right now. Okay, thanks. Let's talk about it. I love cum. Anyway. This is how the gays are perverting America. No, I, seriously. Though, One I, podcast at a time. Yes. When I was growing up, I had this nightmare that, like, um, if I went to hell, that um, hell would be, um, you know, taking the thing that you, like, love the most, and, like, it's like you're just, like, forced in overabundance. And I had this, like, nightmare that I would, like, be forced by Satan to drink, like, a bowl of cum. And does... Oh God, that is so <laughs> fucking Christian of you. No, 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 for sure. No, because, like, every time I masturbate, because, you know, Christians think masturbation is a sin, so every time I... It, every time something bad happened to me in life, I thought it was because it was, like, checking off, like, every time I masturbate something bad it was like like building up like a karma of masturbation sins it's just mm-hmm. that that cup in hell just gets a little bit more full every time exactly oh good so i was like paying off my masturbation sin debt anyway i wanted to talk about pamela before we got to the end of this movie because this bitch is willing to blow up her house mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah man it's the power of motherhood she sees blood soaked panties and is like i'm just gonna spray these and it's fine that was apparently an ad lib by Mimi Rogers. Uh. <laughs> and it's so brilliant because like any mother would be unfazed by seeing blood soaked panties when they know their daughter just got their first period. They're going right. to have stains on their underwear because they're not going to know what to do when it comes to like when to change their pad or their tampon and like how frequently and, you know. Yeah. And you try to hide it in the laundry basket. I have a question. Yeah, but they're going to see it because they do your laundry. Yes. Okay, so if you don't wear a tampon or wear a pad, is that a no. more than normal amount of blood to experience during a period? It really does depend. Some women do have heavier periods. Some women do have lighter periods. It varies. For me, for instance, because of the fact that I have PCOS, I had light periods my whole life. I never had cramps. And then I got an IUD put in to help with my symptoms and to help as part of treatment. And all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. it was like I was initiated into this club of pain and suffering, and it sucked. Oh, God. 
<laughs> but the same is, you know, all of a sudden it got heavier as well. So it changes for women throughout their lives, depending on what birth control method they use. And thankfully now we have other options aside from just pads and tampons, because pads, you feel like wearing a diaper, tampons do all kinds of nasty things to you. And then there's the Diva Cup, the glorious Diva Cup that yields like zero headaches during the month and like just make Oof. you feel like a human. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's a fucking horrific gong show of a process. It sucks. I mean, I don't envy women at all. <laughs> Makes sense. But <laughs> with, when she when she holds up the panties and sprays them to, like, remove the stain, I'm like, that is such a typical mom thing to do. Any mother would do that. That's so normal. And it's perfect in its normalcy. Like, completely yeah. perfect in its normalcy. It is. I think the offer, you know, however extreme for her to blow up her own house in order to protect her two daughters from the pile of bodies that they have been accumulating, you know, that's just kind of the next ridiculous extension of that. Like, yes, I'm willing to clean your bloodstained clothes. I am also willing to destroy evidence and flee the scene of a crime. <laughs> but no, I mean, like, I'm, I, I agree with that. No, so, okay, so I found out later in my life. When I was, like, a uh, mid-20s, I, like, got drunk and I confronted my parents about, like, the things they said to me when I came out to them. And I found out that one of the reasons that my mom, like, didn't believe that I was gay when I told her was because she found my cum rack. <laughs> Which is a washcloth that I had under my bed um, mm -hmm. that I used to come in. And it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Paired with, with, with a Playboy magazine that my friend gave me. Oh, uh, were you looking for, like, a glimpse of dick? No, no. My friend came over and we used to masturbate together. He was straight. Like, not, not together together, but, like, um, like we would watch porn. Like, we would masturbate, like, next to each other and not touch each other. But um, mm -hmm. he was like, do you want this Playboy? And I'm like, you know, trying to be straight. I'm like, what am I going to do? Say, no, I don't want your Playboy. Like, I can't do that. So I took it and I just kept it under my bed next to my cum rag. So my mom just was like, when I told her I was gay, I guess the first thing that went to her head was, but I found your cum rag with this Playboy next to it. <laughs> so they must be connected. Yeah. Like. Yeah. But again, like when my mom, I'm like 25, 26, and she told me this and I'm like, you found my cum rag and you n never said anything. My dad told me that later that she asked him about it and she was like, should we talk to him? And dad was like, no, <laughs> don't say anything to him. <laughs> and, and yet, wouldn't you have maybe cared to have like a Mimi Rogers style conversation? Right? So that you could maybe work some stuff out? Well, okay, so she was very concerned about her daughters having periods. Very much Oh, so. yeah. It was a rite of passage as much for her as it was for her daughters. It was her ability to be like, oh my god, I have all this wisdom that I can give you now and you'll have no choice but mm. to listen to me because you don't talk to anybody else. So yes. <laughs> it's like the whole thing. And obviously that dad is like completely useless. Like I love how checked out the father is. So it's oh, yeah. they have a mother and then they also have like the figure of a man who sits at the dining room table with them. Yeah, basically. And th the thing with Pam is, and I wrote about this actually, I did a piece recently comparing Brightburn to Ginger Snaps and like different depictions oh. of the horrors of puberty. And I, mm -hmm. you know, briefly mention, and I, I, th I think maybe I thought about it more than I wrote about it, but Pam and Elizabeth Banks in Brightburn, they both do what we've been seeing parents do when their children are accused of heinous things. And that's denial, support, and just erasure. Like, and that's mm. what Pam is ultimately doing is, oh, no, they did this thing. 
nobody's taking my babies away from me. I will do whatever it takes to protect them. And it's, you know, deny, deny, deny. They may have killed a girl. Who cares? They're my babies. I have to defend them. Yeah. Yeah. I. Oof. Which, especially after Columbine. I don't know what you all thoughts on. Well, I, I know what Joe's thoughts on Brightburn. I think Brightburn's fine, but I think Elizabeth Banks is great in that movie, and I will defend her till you know I die. But <laughs> this portrayal by Amy Rogers is very different than what that is. But mm-hmm. I did not remember the oh I'll get a match, we'll burn it down. I'm gonna leave your husband. I, I'm gonna leave your dad. Like we're great. I don't remember that. And so when I saw this tonight, I was like, holy fuck! And so then when she doesn't come back, mm-hmm. I was very much. And th- that's why I don't love, I like this movie, but I don't love it, because I was more invested in the Pamela story than I was in the Ginger Bridget story, <laughs> which oh, maybe says so more weird. about me. I know, I know, I know, I know. But, well, okay, so there's two different ways to look at this. One is logistically from an actual filmmaking standpoint. I think that they only had Mimi Rogers for a certain amount of time. So I don't know if they also ran out of that. The commentary didn't shed any light on that, but there may have been deleted scenes. I didn't watch those either. I'm useless at research, apparently. (laughs) But I think one of the big things was that Fawcett, because he's most interested in telling the story about the sisters, he uses Bridget's deception like she she effectively lures Pamela away so that they have the house free so that they can try to execute the curse and then they will run away. So they'll ditch mom, you know, bless her heart, but they don't want to run away with her. So I think you're meant to assume that everything just happens so quickly. And then at the end of the day, like, what do you want Pamela to wander down the stairs and see her daughter's dead and Mm -hmm. maybe transforming like it's just not the ending that i think he wanted people to leave on because it's not about her and i get it but or to kill her yeah kind of i mean i i wanted something because i I guess i mean going into the sequel she's not in it i mean that's obviously like a money thing and a contractual thing and she's probably like what the fuck sequel to gender snaps but i will say the wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> says Mimi Rogers readily agreed to play the mother Pamela saying that she liked the black humor and comic relief in the role so that that's the big comedic centerpiece of this movie is her but mm-hmm. we can you know not talk about it we can talk about it but I think it's why I didn't like the sequel is because um it's just Bridget in a house no she's in an asylum oh I'm sorry an asylum with Tatiana Maslany and she you know she's seeing visions of Ginger who is still dead yeah. Actually, you know what? That's my high school self. I was like, oh, good. Ginger's really alive. And then she wasn't. And I was mad. Yeah. Hmm. I've never seen the sequel, actually. I've seen the prequel, but I don't remember it very well. The prequel's right. kind of a remake. Kind of? Yeah, kind of. So it's set a couple hundred years in the past during like the frontier But it's times. like their ancestors. Right. Yeah, so it's meant to be a bit of an origin story about how white settlers completely fucked over indigenous people of course but also there's a heavy dose of colonialism but i think you're also meant to infer like this is kind of how the werewolf got into things like suburbia in the original ginger snaps mm-hmm. actually that's my thing with this movie is like we never learn who the werewolf is the original yeah. werewolf no and I get that's not important. How did the process begin? Where did that... Yeah, it's like the movie is not interested in that. It's just a vehicle to tell the story. Yeah. Well, because in a normal werewolf movie, it would be like, oh, like, that's a twist. You know, this person's the werewolf. And they kill that werewolf. <laughs> like, 20, like 20 minutes into this movie. In a it's gruesome a little bit way. American werewolf in London, though, where you don't really learn who that original person is or how it happened. It's just kind oh, of like, I guess, oh, we stumbled I guess that's into true. this. Yeah, I guess that's true. 
But I always appreciated that idea more. Films don't need to provide those kinds of answers when they're telling a particularly meaty, interesting story like this. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to not have all the answers about the mythology. And it's interesting, though, because I think people might have expected something like that in the sequel and the prequel, which were shot at the same time. Part of it is they're on smaller budgets, they're smaller casts. I think the other good thing about the prequel is that it's far more ambitious visually because it's actually set in the frontier times. So they're, right. like, they're living in a fort and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But the scripts are definitely weaker. And because they were shooting back to back, you can kind of get the sense that people were tired and stretched out a little bit. And the director of the sequel is the editor of the first one. And so it's a saw situation. Yes. And the uh... director of the prequel has only done one other movie and he is one of the three directors of a christmas horror story which p.s is um very good yeah it's a it's an anthology film from 2015 and also the editor of this movie who directed the second movie also edited a christmas horror story oh i'm sorry no he directed part of that one too so oh fuck okay wait (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry complete the train of thought trace a christmas horror story has three directors it's Brett Sullivan, who edited Ginger Snaps and directed Ginger Snaps 2. It's Stephen Hoban, who produced this movie, who I talked about at the beginning of this episode. And then Grant Harvey, who directed the prequel Ginger Snaps. Yeah, interesting. So, I'm, I'm guessing it's Canadian. Probably. But anyway, not important. Really interesting <laughs> factoid, but really good. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we going next? And so great for conversation. I have zero to contribute about the, pre- about the sequels or the prequels, because I... I got nothing. I was saying, y'all haven't seen A Christmas Horror Story, apparently, which, P.S., is very fun. I have not, but I would be glad to check it out. It sounds kind of insane. It was one of those direct-to-DVD movies starring William Shatner, which you were like, there's no way that's good. And then you watch it, and you're like, oh, this is kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is that... That's not the one that has Santa Claus fighting Krampus. Yes, it is. It is that one. Oh, that one? Yeah. Yeah, Then I have seen it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I know that one. Yeah, the cover art, unfortunately, makes it look really bad, yeah, but it, it is a lot of fun. Yeah, the cover art makes it look like poop. <laughs> I, I think it came out like the year after Krampus did. Anyway, so... So, do we want to start to wrap things up? Do people have other things they want to talk about with Ginger Snaps? The legacy? I don't have much else. I mean, the film has an amazing legacy, right? It's It's mm-hmm. obviously resonated with people for a very specific reason. And I think it's resonated with female audiences for a reason that is largely our own, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. I'm actually very glad that we had you. I mean, not, you're great, but I, like, <laughs> just like <laughs> no, but like just to have a female perspective on on this particular movie, because I don't think we would have been able to do this justice without you. So oh, I thanks. thank you, by the way. <laughs> no, I mean, just, like, no, there there are things that you pointed out tonight that I was like, oh fuck, I didn't think about that because I'm not a woman. Well, yeah. That's the beauty of different perspectives, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Normally, we just talk out of our asses. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, so do I, like 90% of the time. But sometimes it hits. So, hey. I just I just talk about cum. <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's fine. <laughs> okay. So, with that, how about we play our game? I was say, what the fuck is your game, Joe? All right. So, this is inspired by your earlier comment. About cum? Like, no. No. <laughs> no. I'm not going back to that. 
<laughs> one track mind. Sorry, I was. Ju- I just want to talk about cum. I just want to talk about the listeners. If you want to talk about cum, DM me. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Sorry. You're inviting a lot of danger. I know. Yeah. Life. No, don't do that. Don't, 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 don't do that. Continue, Joe. <laughs> the funny thing, Ariel, is that if you ever feel like having a really shitty time, just do like a Twitter poll about how often men get sent unsolicited pictures or comments and that kind of stuff compared to women. It's like zero. Yeah. Women get it way more, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's... Okay, I was like, are you trying to insinuate that men get it more? That's a lie. No, I'm suggesting <laughs> women get it a lot more, men get it like virtually nothing. I would, okay, I'm sorry. I know it's like super offensive, but I would love to get unsolicited dick pics. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I finished I my wish I could, okay, I know. you know what would be great then? Okay, put out a call to arms for all of the women of film Twitter and be like, ladies. Forward me your dick pics. If you don't want to deal with the harassment. Oh my God. Just put like a some weird code into your various emails, DMs, inboxes, what have you, where all of that shit just gets filtered directly to you. And then you can respond to them and freak them the fuck out because they're um, a bunch of heterosexual douchebags. Wait, I love that idea. Actually, and I want to do this. <laughs> I will repost the dick pics with a funny comment of what I think the dick looks like. Oh my God. Ladies. I think this is brilliant. <laughs> I think Please this could work. Please do that. <laughs> Please send me it's your like dick pics. Solve the problem. It's like world peace. <laughs> I'm gonna put like a movie quote under the dick based on what the dick looks like, and that's oh gonna my be the god. Thing. I genuinely love this idea. The more we discuss it, and the more ridiculous it gets, the more I kind of love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. You're gonna uh. have to work on your Photoshop skills because I want to see like hats. I want to see. Stars. I don't. I can't do Photoshop. No, 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 no. I can't do Photoshop. I'll do like the um, like when you, the iPhone editor where you can like draw like you can draw with your finger on it. I'll just put like, a little top hat on it. It's fine. Oh, you'll like Perez Hilton that shit or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna Perez Hilton it, and I'll become famous. And um, yeah, that's it. That's the that was my life. And it all started here with just a casual conversation about come. come. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is your game, Joe? What is your game? Okay. So the game proper is what would a not puberty, but kind of like what we talked about earlier, what would a 20-something equivalent of a coming-of-age, puberty, body horror kind of thing, what would a quintessential 20-something film look like? Did you make that up while we were fucking having that conversation about 20-year-olds? Yeah, man. God damn it, Joe. Damn. I'm just this good. <laughs> so what would a quintessential film about late 20-something life look like? Mm-hmm. It could be body horror. It could be... It has to be body horror. Oh, for me, it's body horror. Mm. That's something that the genre almost never explores, right? See, I feel like it's a, something a little bit more in, like, some weird existential kind of cerebral territory where it's Mm -hmm. more about existential angst than anything else and like Mm -hmm. it's monotony maybe even like a weird spike jones kind of situation a la like being john malkovich like that kind of visual aesthetic yes but with like this really but with this really weird kind of like monotonous repetitive bullshit and then you find out that it's actually like this second circle of hell or something and they've just or they're they're in purgatory or something but that's like late 20 something life where you're basically hammering your head up against a wall and you never actually get anywhere because you don't have the wherewithal or sense of self to be able to be like wait no this isn't right for me i'm gonna make a change so you just do the same bullshit that tortures yourself 
Yes, like, like, a, that. like a Groundhog Day, Happy Death Day kind of thing where it's like, yeah. it's cyclical, but it's also... But it's also linear. Yeah. Like it, it looks like it could be cyclical and repetitive, but it's actually linear and going along a steady trajectory towards basically the same thing every day. But it's not the same thing. Like, whereas something like Groundhog Day is literally a, a repeat of the same day. This is, no, it's a new day. You're just forcing yourself to go through the exact same thing because you don't know how to do something for yourself. No, what I would love to is then you tack on horror themed clue style different endings. So yes. it's like a choose your own, like one oh, of them dude. is you get married. I, and one I of miss them is that. like you get promoted. <laughs> and one of them is you become a freelance writer and you have no money ever again. <laughs> That's yes. the scariest one of all. <laughs> is it though? Because I think I'm happier now that I've done that. <laughs> I think. I say with a giant question mark. I don't know. No. And this is some quick thinking on your feet, girl, because whenever Joe gives me his fucking games and <laughs> I have to sit here. But uh, so, okay. So have y'all ever seen Tetsuo the Iron Man? I have. Okay. I've heard of it. Okay. So <laughs> it's this, I think it's Japanese. Maybe it's Korean, but it's one of those. Fuck. Maybe it's not. It's Asian. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what it is before I, like, edit it. <laughs> but, no, it's about a man who slowly becomes a machine. And, like, there's a whole thing where he, like, you know, rapes his girlfriend with his drill penis because he's becoming a machine. But I was thinking Wait, about... Wait, no, I think I'm thinking of a different movie. Never mind. I haven't seen this one. I know of it. All right, sorry. Maybe you're thinking of Akira because there's a character named Tetsuo in Akira, which is an anime. No, I'm thinking of some other completely batshit movie about a dude who goes into a prison and there's a lot of really crazy fight scenes. Is that I'll, I'll think of it for after. Continue your story and I'll look it up. Okay, so, so Tetsuo the Iron Man is 1989 Japanese cyberpunk horror film. Japanese, right. Basically, it's um, mostly a silent movie, but it's about this man who slowly is becoming a machine. And he is getting becoming more and more metal, or I guess iron in the case of the title, as the movie goes on. It's very short. It's not a movie you would just put on to show people. But yeah, the the, the infamous scene is like where he um basically reveal he's having sex with his girlfriend, he reveals his penis, which is a big drill, and he rapes her with it and kills it. Kills her, sorry. But I was thinking about our society and I know it's a millennial thing, but it's I mean, again, we're of the age. We're in our we're all in our thirties. Our obsession with social media. And how that could somehow take over our bodies. I don't know how it would do that. But somehow kind of like a technological body horror. Like merging with the internet type thing. That's my that's my suggestion. Mm. So it's almost a bit like Cam. Yeah. Or maybe even like not even becoming like, you know, your body. But like you're dissolving into the interwebs. Mm. Like a pe- pieces of you start disappearing. Or like pulse. Like pulse. Ooh. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It was Ricky O I was thinking of, by the way. Oh, I've never seen that, but I, I know what that is. That's like the really, really, really gore. Is it? Is it Miike? Is it Miike? Maybe it's not. I want to say, hang on. No, it is Nai Choi Lam. I don't know okay. if I'm pronouncing that right. No, I've seen uh, GIFs from that movie, but I've never seen yeah. the movie. Yeah. It's, it's very like super gory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and absurd Ooh, as that's fuck. That's dangerous. Yes. Joe, do you have an answer, or are we moving on? No, I am happy and interested in both of your films. I will (laughs) be looking for a 500-word pitch in the morning. Eat me. Fuck you. So, so Jason Bloom, now that you've listened to this episode, clearly, give us money, and we'll put this together for you. Basically. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> or anything else that you will hire us for. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, are we are we done? Are we moving on to the end? Yes. Okay. So, before we announce what we're covering next week, Ariel. Yes. Plug away. What would you like to plug right now? Well, I'm doing a bunch of work for Adam Tickets or Adam Insider, which mm-hmm. is really fun and really great. So that's A T O M. Yeah, I can spell. Um, <laughs> so just I've mentioned it to a lot of people, and they're like Adam, like Eve. I'm like no, like an atom. And they're like, oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, So I've got a bunch of stuff up there. I just recently, as I mentioned, did a piece about Brightburn and Ginger Snaps and Pubescent Horror. So that's up there. I also, what else do I have coming up? That's a really interesting question. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but you can find my work there. You can find me on all social media platforms at AFIS8, A-F-I-S-8. So I'm on Twitter a lot. So you can find all my stuff there, or you can find any of my work on my website, arielfisher.com. Awesome. And if you want to find us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I am at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets so we can find you. You can email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com or you can go to our Facebook page because as we announced last week, we now have a Facebook page. Yay! Yes. If you have two (laughs) seconds, please head on over to iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a rating. Or leave us a review if you want to type something out that is nice. If it's mean, don't fucking do anything. If you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horror queers where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like ma plus if you're a patron you'll get a newsletter on the first of each month that will let you know our film schedule for that month and you can catch up ahead of time joe Mm -hmm. what are we covering next week all right so in case people have forgotten we are in the midst of our summer franchise season so this was week number three so number four we are heading into Tales from the Crypt Territory with Demon Knight. Ooh. I've only seen this on TV, and I'm excited to watch it, because the Blu-ray is waiting in my living room for me right now. <laughs> but of course it is. <laughs> and I have never seen it, so Neither this have is going to be interesting for me. I remember liking it. It's very um, disturbing, if I remember correctly. But we'll see. But it's Jada Pinkett Smith wearing a butch yeah. lesbian haircut, even though her character's yes. maybe not a lesbian. I don't know. We're, we're probably going to call her a lesbian. I'm going to yeah. read her as a lesbian because yeah. that's what I need. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> all of that being said, I think we can cross out Ginger Snaps. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. <laughs> This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.